Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Charting Queer Health, a podcast at the intersection of queer culture, healthcare, and research. On behalf of Howard Brown Health in Chicago, you know me, I'm your host, Matt. I'm a cis white gay man, a Chicago resident, but more importantly, I have the incredible opportunity to sit down with various experts from across our organization and across our community to learn from their expertise, amplify their stories and voices, and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Before we dive into the episode, I wanted to let you know that we want to hear from you. There is a form in the description of this episode with a few questions about the podcast. Uh, and I just want to know what we're doing well, what we can improve on, uh, all fun stuff like that. So uh, if you're a listener, go ahead and fill that out. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thanks. We are joined by loyal friend of the show, Caitlin Williams. This is now her third time on the on the podcast, and we are so grateful, as always, for her expertise and her knowledge. Uh, and she has done a lot of work in this area, so I'm excited to learn more about ADHD. Joining the show for a record third time is Caitlin Williams. Caitlin, thank you for being here, as always. For our listeners that aren't familiar with you, can you share your name, uh, your role here at Howard Brown, and your pronouns, please? Sure. My name is Caitlin Williams. I am a licensed clinical psychologist. I'm also the manager of the substance use services team here at Howard Brown. Um, my pronouns are she and her. I practice out of 63rd Street. Did awesome. I say that part already? No. Um, so I practice out of 63rd Street. And I don't normally put this in my introduction, but since it's relevant here, I am also an ADHD certified clinical services provider. Love that. Which part of my interest in today's topic. Yeah, yeah. Um, this, this topic kind of came about very organically because we finished up recording our last episode about seasonal affective disorder and we were talking about other things that might tie into it. And I have uh, just gotten diagnosed with ADHD and you're like, well, wait, there's a lot of interesting info. And so we were like, you know what, let's schedule this. So there's a lot to dive into. Um, and I think this is such an interesting topic because like we were saying, ADHD feels pretty common. And so a lot of people don't read into it or do their research on what it really means and the ramifications of a diagnosis and treatment and everything. So this is what I think will surprise people in the amount that they don't know, which I'm excited about that prospect. So to, to go to the beginning, um, can we get a abbreviated definition of ADHD and its most common symptoms? Sure. Um, so ADHD is the most common neurodevelopmental disorders. Um, so those are a little bit different than mental health or mental illness conditions. Mm. Um, so these interfere with how a person, like their ability to learn, um, their cognitions, their thought processes, uh, memory, things like that, which is a little bit different than a mental health condition. Uh, most mental health conditions we can treat, a neurodevelopmental disorder or condition is going to be a lifelong thing to manage. Okay. Um, and so, so to neurodevelopmental, that makes, implies at least to me that, uh, other mental health conditions are like maybe later in life or don't at least impact our development as people, or I don't know, just the word developmental makes me think about it differently. Yeah. And it should, uh, cause I think it often gets sort of clumped into now, obviously if you are someone with ADHD, it's going to impact your mental health. Uh, and we can talk about that a little bit later, but uh, it's really important to distinguish this as a neurodevelopmental condition because this is an issue of brain wiring. This is not an effort issue and this is not an intelligence issue, which mm. is how it often gets sort of misconstrued or misunderstood. Um, this is a highly genetic, there's like a highly genetic component to ADHD with up to like a 91% likelihood 
um, of passing it on to one of your children, if that's the instance. So this is super genetic component to it. Um, but yeah, it is one of the most treatable psychiatric disorders that we know, and it's not, as you said, recognized a whole ton in primary care or even in my own mental health field. Um, it's not recognized as much, and yet it causes a significant functional impairment in the yeah. lives of folks who are living with it um, and also has a sort of a myriad of comorbidities that go along with it that further can reduce the quality of life for someone living with ADHD if it's not managed. Yeah. So, um, so because it's not, it's, it's a wiring thing and it's not like a, um, you know, there's less of a come and go nature that sometimes mental illnesses have, um, is, is, are symptoms regarded in the same way? Are there more like manifestations because they're always there or like places you see it more or how do we um, dive into how this uh, condition show, shows itself in day-to-day -day life or is there any yeah. different language? I actually love that you're making that distinguish this the distinguishing part about language because I'm like a huge language yeah. person. Um, I'm not a big fan of terms like disorders and symptoms and yeah. things like that but it's also part of um, kind of the work but um yeah, the way I would think about it is more as like traits, like a yeah. spectrum of traits that people have. And I personally perceive ADHD as like a a variation of the of the norm, hmm. right? So I think a lot of our society is set up for what we call neurotypical brains, so brains that are not experiencing, say, ADHD or autism. Um, and that's sort of like the presumed norm. Hmm. And if your brain doesn't work in the way uh, that is presumed norm, then it means like there must be something wrong with it. Right. And I think that I would challenge that narrative today that it's just that your brain learns differently. It thinks differently. It's motivated differently. And there's not a lot of space to learn about that. But once you learn about your how your brain works differently, then you can sort of adapt uh, your learning and your environment to be able to meet your goals, the goals that you want. Yeah. Right. Um, but if you are trying to do that in a way that is deemed pretty neurotypical, it's going to leave you with a lot of frustration, um, self-esteem issues, things like that, um, and thinking that there's something wrong. Right. But so we think about it as this spectrum of traits. And the, def the deficit model is actually very inaccurate. There isn't a deficit of attention in ADHD. It's more of like a, an attention regulation issue, uh, uh, inconsistent attention, or I like to talk to folks about ma it's many attentions, hmm. right? There's not a deficit, but people have a hard time controlling when it's on and off. Gotcha. So like a modulation issue, yeah. um, a performance issue, and it primarily affects executive functioning. And this is the cognitive process that's around organizing, prioritizing tasks, um, managing time efficiently, making decisions, those kinds of things that are useful in carrying out a goal till the end. Um, so people who are struggling with executive functioning that we see in ADHD, those are people who may like misplace their materials, prioritize the wrong things, um, have a hard time completing tasks at all, and then they get really overwhelmed in that mm -hmm. process. Um, <clears throat> there's a couple metaphors of just learning and being in the field around this that I think are actually much better than all those sort of clinical words I just said. Uh, one of the, somebody in the field once described it as having a Ferrari brain with bicycle brakes. Mm. Um, so I like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another leading person in the field named Russell Barkley, whose name will come up time and time again if you're taking a look, talks about it as the disorder of good intentions. So it's a disorder of not doing what you know, not a disorder of not knowing what to do. 
Um, so it's that oh, difficulty of transforming goals into action. I had to take a second to wrap my head around that, but that makes so much sense. It's not that people don't know what they should be doing or, you know, they have bad intentions. Everybody wants to carry out their goals and be successful. Did you just, there's that block. Their brain works differently. So yeah. it's harder. Yeah. And uh, it's also been described as like a blindness to the future. It's another thing mm. that you or Russell Barkley talk about Chronically living in the present. So it's hard to Sort of plan, plan for yeah. the future, right? I think that's so interesting. And I love... We know we're, like, we're both big on vocab. I love the distinction of traits versus symptoms um, because like you said, it's not, you, you know, there's the concept of something being neurotypical. It's kind of murky uh, because it's typical in that that's how our society, like that's the type of brain our society works probably best with or the way we've set up society to work best with. But because there's other models doesn't mean that they're, you know, worse it's just you we have to make different concessions to make it function in the same way i think yeah it's just a different way of learning your brain learns differently that's it i love that i've i've heard um people that work with um you know other conditions like like autism or 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 down syndrome where um yeah your, your brain just to, to help people like in middle school and high school, we got this a lot when, you know, you would have somebody come in and, and talk about things and it's like to, to make it understandable to like a younger audience. It's, it's like, you know, they're, they don't function at a lower level. It's just at a different level. Um, so you, sometimes you have to do different things to like relate with them or to understand motivations for things, but it's just a, an alternate path to the same end goal, uh, so to speak. So probably an oversimplification but um i've yeah is that a bad is that a bad this is a a tangent is that a bad thing to loop those conditions together or to like compare like to talk about brain functioning in relation to adhd and then also you know autism as uh similar yeah so no they're actually all considered like neurodivergence right so autism Mm -hmm. is also a form of neurodivergence Um, so again, it's not a mental health condition, um, but it is, it does have to do with the cognitive processes of the brain, right? Same with like cerebral palsy, things like that. So, um, it's not in, it's not an inaccurate, I wouldn't say an inaccurate perspective. Okay. That good to know. Yeah. I'm sorry. That was a tangent, but I just always like to categorize things in my head. So, so we see these traits. Um, I, I feel like we always have a, a, an idea of what we think ADHD looks like. And it's been kind of um, put in the public's consciousness. And like, I always think of like the ooh shiny joke and like things like that, which maybe aren't inaccurate, but I think people latch onto those descriptions and then like, don't consider any further traits associated with ADHD. So what, um, what are some of those other traits that we might not think about or aren't usually included in the narrative? Yeah, I'm glad you're bringing this up because this is sort of uh, one of the bigger pitfalls, the common narrative that it's usually a a young person, typically a boy, and they're sort of like bouncing off the walls, having trouble with their schoolwork, and it's predominantly talked about in this school kind of setting. And you don't hear as much about what about the folks once they grow up, the kids when they grow up and they're adults, right? But again, because it's a neurodevelopmental condition, you don't grow out of it. 
Um, although the presentation of your traits as you get older can shift. Um, that is like, we'll talk about subtypes at some point here, mm -hmm. but um, your subtype presentation can shift over time. But in terms of uh, living with ADHD, that's gonna be pretty consistent. So less is known about the kiddos who grow up and then become adults with ADHD. Mm. So what we see when we sort of pull back the lens is that there are a handful of things that people with ADHD all have in common that people without ADHD don't have. Um, and one of them is what we call an interest-based nervous system. This is different than a neurotypical brain, which is important-based, right? So I find a task important or a sec secondarily important. My boss finds it important, my partner, my parent. Um, that's how a neurotypical brain will find motivation based on importance um, or consequences. With people with ADHD in this interest-based nervous system, it's predominantly motivated by passion, novelty, urgency. Um, you know, they like rewards, they don't like consequences. Uh, they may know that something is important, but they're not motivated by that knowledge mm. of importance. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one of the key components. So again, if we're talking about working with your brain, then it means how do we sort of inject interest into things yeah. that need to get done? How do we gamify it to make it fun yeah. or challenging um, so that it interests the ADHD brain? So that's kind of one component. The second thing we tend to see is emotional hyperarousal. Uh, this is how we tend to think of like the hyperactivity component. Um, but what tends to get overlooked is the internal hyperarousal. So you'll hear, hear people talk about feeling tense all the time or like they can't relax or they can't just sit and watch a movie. They've got to be also scrolling on their phone or mm. fidgeting with something in their hands. Um, so this kind of feeling of like not being able to turn off your brain or relax your body. Um, so it can be sort of an internalized hyperarousal. Um, folks with ADHD are passionate people uh, with big emotions that they tend to experience more intensely than their neurotypical peers, um, which uh, on the plus side makes them very kind, passionate friends and lovers, and also can make folks um, pretty vulnerable to developing low self-esteem or comparing themselves to their peers who seemingly have a, a more easy time starting and finishing tasks. Mm -hmm. um, they might experience criticism more intensely. Um, and also just like factually, kids and adults with ADHD receive more negative feedback um, in messaging. That's whether that's at school, from their mm. partners, their parents, their peers. Um, and all of that can kind of contribute over time to like overwhelming feelings of shame, which can tend to be pretty dominant emotional experience for people with ADHD. Um, over time, that can start to look like a harsh internal dialogue, mm. the sensitivity to criticism, and sometimes self-sabotaging behaviors, right? So um, at work, in relationships, um, personal goals, things right. like that. Is that the, the like, I'm not going to try for fear of not being good at it, so I'm going to just remove myself from yes. it to eliminate that risk? Right. Gotcha. Right. So, yeah, precisely. That is what that is. Um, you know, and you know, it's that kind of presentation around the, the hyper, the emotional hyperarousal that often leads to folks then getting diagnosed with a mood disorder before their actual ADHD mm. diagnosis. So that's a trend that we tend to see. Um, and in most cases, the 
mood disorder or anxiety disorder is usually secondary to the untreated or undiagnosed ADHD. Um, statistically, folks are uh, on average going to see about 2.3 clinicians and go through about 6.6 .6 antidepressant trials before being accurately diagnosed primarily with ADHD. Um, so that's sort of the second um, trait we tend to see. Mm -hmm. uh, the third is something called rejection sensitivity. Uh, sometimes referred to as rejection sensitivity dysphoria or RSD. And this is a vulnerability to rejection, but it doesn't have to be real. It can even be like the, the perceived, um, perceived rejection, right? So either real um, or perceived, and it's usually triggered by um, feeling teased or criticized by people who are really important to you in your life. Um, like a sense of falling short, uh, failing to meet your own expectations or uh, somebody else's high standards uh, or perceived high standards. And this is more than um, like pain someone who's neurotypical might experience because obviously rejection is hard right. for anybody. But for people with ADHD, the RSD is experienced um, when you ask them to describe it as an actual like physical pain, mm. like a stabbing to the chest, a like punch to the gut. Um, that's really painful. And it's so painful that folks will, like you said, remove themselves from opportunities or self-sabotage in an attempt to protect themselves from that experience. Mm. Um, but it's, it's pretty overwhelming for folks. Um, and they often struggle to talk about it openly with friends or therapists because, um, there's a lot of shame in having yeah. it. And, um, yeah, a lot of people tend to cope by becoming people pleasers or um, removing them, like totally opting out altogether, right? Um, this is another reason the rejection sensitivity, why folks might get uh, diagnosed with a mood disorder prior to that. Um, and it's actually in 99% of people with ADHD report RSD. So this is like a very significant piece of the diagnosis that you just don't hear that much about. And 30% of people with ADHD say it's the most impairing uh, experience in their ADHD. So those two things are, or those three things are sort of the big, uh, less commonly kind of highlighted yeah. outside of that hyper boy on the ceiling narrative. Right. I am floored because like I said, I have been recently diagnosed in so many of these things. While my my diagnosis was, um, and the clinic said this, an abbreviated diagnosis that the diagnosis they gave me would only be valid like there like if I probably went to another place they would want to do additional screening so I don't know what merit it has but all of the the rejections of being a people pleaser oh my goodness that is like the most paralyzing thing I have had my entire life is the inability to tell people no or fear of disappointing them and that is always the biggest motivator for me like i would always be fine disappointing myself because i never held myself to any standards but if somebody else asked me to do something i would always bend over backwards because i didn't want to disappoint them um and so like like getting into fitness that was the only motivator that could actually get me to go to the gym was if i had a personal trainer because i didn't want to disappoint them and make them angry at me but if i tried to get myself to go it was a non-starter so that stuck out to me um, the internal narrative, like, yeah, emotional hyperarousal where like, it's, it's hard to get, uh, your brain to turn off when you get fixated on certain things. And it's like, I have had those sleepless nights where it's like one topic 
that I just can't stop thinking about and not even necessarily an important one, just like something that's dominating my brain. For no, your brain is itchy and it needs to figure yes. out the thing. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's really a not important thing at all. It is itchy and you need to figure out or the Or even answer. something figure outable. Like my brain will add like additional layers to stuff to like figure it out, even if it's probably a simple issue and not something that warrants that level of like processing. Um, so that was wild to me. Um, so yeah, I, I, I won't make this podcast about like affirming my own diagnosis, but <laughs> it's really, and I'm sure that's something that you get a lot when working with people on this is that like moment of epiphany of like, oh my gosh, you're describing me. Like, is, is that generally the case or do people kind of come in knowing this about themselves. Yeah. So my experience both clinically and um, personally, because I have a, a lot of people who are very near and dear to my heart mm -hmm. who have ADHD, which is sort of how I start, you know, got motivated yeah. to learn more about this um, when they would share their experiences. Uh, but most of them, it's actually surprising when I say, you know, I hear what you're saying. And usually they think it's like, I think I have anxiety or I think I have depression. Uh, what do you think? You know, and yeah. typically my thought is like, well, I don't, you know, if it's a friend, I'm like, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not like diagnosing you. Mm -hmm. I'm not your therapist, but like, it sounds kind of like ADHD and people are like that thing that kids have in school. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh boy, well, yeah. <laughs> here we go. Right. Yeah. Like, um, and so it saddens me. So because again, it is the most treatable psychiatric condition. And mm -hmm. yet because, uh, place uh, the narrative around it is so narrow mm. in terms of who has it and what it looks like and where it occurs is that we have large the majority of people actually with ADHD um being misdiagnosed being treated with for other conditions that they may or may not have or getting advice that is like typical uh, like neurotypical advice like just get a planner or like <laughs> Yeah, see, and you laugh because you know exactly why that doesn't yeah. work. Because for a neurodivergent brain, look, the planner is What am I gonna... supposed to do with these sheets of paper? No, and then, like... like the second it's off your desk, it's out of sight, out of mind. And yeah. you're never going to see that planner again mm -hmm. until it's like December of that year. Um, you know, so then folks, again, are getting this advice that's more catered to a neurotypical brain. And they are, quote unquote, failing at it, which then adds to this narrative, right, that they're not smart, that they're not good enough, um, that there's something wrong with them, which is a narrative that starts very, very early on mm. in school and in the home when people, you know, make these comparisons to a neurotypical brain. Yeah. That was, again, not to make this about me, but quick, like reinforcement of that story. I did okay, like K through 12. I was always labeled like a blurter. Uh, you know, I had a lot of energy, but it wasn't, and maybe they didn't have the the words so much to, or the, the knowledge to kind of diagnose me early on, but I had enough structure in my like personal life with my family that it didn't, what the manifestations started appearing more and having more consequences in college yes. because I, there was no mom there to make sure yes. I got up and got to class or to make sure I did my homework or to govern my time. And so I have this memory. My college had obviously like a free mental health counseling and I went to a counselor and I told him like, like, I don't know why I can't go to class. Uh, and I, like it became this thing where if I missed enough, then it's scarier to try to like catch back up. And it's that like, I can't, I can't do it. There's this block. 
Um, and his advice was to get a print of whatever I think that my education is going to help me accomplish, whether that's like a nice car or like a house or something, and to put it next to my bed because that would motivate me enough to get out of bed, I guess, and do my homework. And I was like, I think I'm depressed. And he's like, no, you're just lazy. That's, yeah. Uh, and that's so bad. that wasn't helpful. And so I like limped out of college with a degree. And then uh, right after that, I just obviously was still having huge problems with executive function of like timing of like making myself go to bed. So I became nocturnal, all of these things mm -hmm. and got put on an antidepressant for it, which didn't change any of my executive function, but it just didn't make me sad about my lack of executive function. So I still wasn't being productive. I just wasn't crying about it. Um, and so the only, like, I was fine for a while um, because I got a job that I think was well suited to my neurodivergent brain. It was, I was working for Aldi. So, and there's no specific roles there. So you just kind of bounce around as people need you. It's something new every day. Oh, every day, every moment. Like you'll be doing a task and it might take 15 minutes. And then what's next? What's next? What's next? And that was very yes. conducive to the way that I work. So I was very successful there. And then transitioning out of that into a desk job, I was like, oh no, this isn't good. And then also being in a, a long-term relationship for the first time, also this had implications on that. Yep. How do you communicate? I, yes. I, he, I got constantly yelled at by my boyfriend for interrupting him while he was speaking. And then finally I put it all together and I was like, you know what? My sister and my mom have this diagnosis. Maybe that's me too. And it all clicked into place. So I'm, this is tremendously cathartic for me to hear all of this. And I promise I won't go into any more tangents related to me, but um, maybe those uh, experiences ring true for other people that are listening. But yeah, the, the college um, realization yeah. is a very common one for precisely the reasons you talk about, that a lot of the uh, external things you had in place to create structure and accountability for people who end up going to college, a lot of those are then gone. gone. Mm -hmm. um, so that's actually quite common. Yeah, it was... Oof. Uh, and, and, and then to get told that it was just that I'm lazy. I was like, I don't, but like, I'm, I'm smart and I'm, I can get up and go to things that like the only class I actually went to was my choir class because I loved that. That was yes. interesting. <laughs> so it, again, it was that interest versus importance. Importance people knew like, yeah, you need to take these boring classes to get an actual degree. And I was like, but I'm only interested in choir. Like, right. so that's, oh, but wow. that's a good, like your example of the job is a good a good example of what we'll talk about later on, like just like how to manage it is like finding ways to work with your brain, right? So ADHD brains thrive in that sort of novelty every day, the mm -hmm. newness, right? And I think the stat, um, it's something like like 300% or 350% more likely to become entrepreneurs oh, because right. there's the creativity. You can set your own schedule. It changes, right? So like a lot of people who are entrepreneurs have ADHD and it makes a lot of sense because it's a great way to work with your brain, right? Right. Uh, people in medical maybe, right? Because it's like the emergency room is something new all the time. It's fast paced. It's changing. Um, something like a nine to five that's pretty repetitive is going to be Difficult. harder, so much harder. Yeah. 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 And that again, chronic, I have like eight side hustles that I like, like, yep. or <laughs> are interested in and found a way to make money off of. So that absolutely tracks. Do we see this affecting groups of people more than others? Or is it pretty like widespread across everybody? 
Yeah. So I, again, I think the one of the strongest indicators, right, is that genetic mm. link. If one of your parents does, if both your parents do, right, a sibling does, gotcha. that's the biggest piece. Um, it's highly genetic. The, there are some environmental factors. Um, then you could sort of get it acquired, like in a brain injury, or there's even actually um, some up and coming research on like uh, COVID acquired ADHD, where people are reporting ADHD like symptoms during long haul, like long haul COVID, um, which is actually kind of interesting, but also that people who have ADHD and then got COVID, their symptoms got worse. But anyways, the the main component, right, is is the genetic thing. Um, In terms of certain demographics or groups of folks, um, again, and we always talk about this when I'm on the podcast with you all, since we are an LGBTQ organization, um, the evidence does suggest that uh, neurodivergent people are more likely to be in the LGBTQ community. Mm. Um, there's some speculation as to why that is. Um, and there's also then still tends to be this sort of harmful narrative that it's overdiagnosed in the community, mm. uh, which I'm gonna kind of push back on, right? Um, because just LGBT folk, LGBTQ folks are less likely to get the healthcare they deserve. They're less likely to receive diagnoses um, in general for things. So yeah. I'm just gonna push back on that. Um, so we do know that it's higher in the community. When they look at gender, again, this is, as I said on the other two podcasts, it's, it's through the binary. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we see in terms of who is diagnosed, it is statistically more likely to be folks who are male, 62% versus 38% who are women. Mm. Um, and that's out of a total, there's, they say the estimates for ADHD in the US are about 4.4%. It's like 10 and a half million people. Um, I'm going to do a little asterisk on that too. There's like a million asterisks, by the way, in everything I'm going to say here. Um, but there's one here, which is that um, it often goes more undiagnosed in girls. So again, as we talked about earlier, uh, the girls who have ADHD are sort of overshadowed by the stereo- stereotypical hyperactive boy presentation mm. that is the predominant narrative, um, who kind of have those more hyperactive traits. Um so when girls who have ADHD are being screened, they're again more likely to be mis- mistaken for a mood disorder. Um, they're also more likely to have what we call an inattentive type, which we'll talk about the types at some point here. But the inattentive type um, is more likely to get misdiagnosed as a mood disorder. And then for boys who have the inattentive type, they are more likely to get skipped over for that ADHD diagnosis also, um, just due to gender stereotypes. Um, so. The sort of summary of that question is there's a general bias in the diagnostic process for ADHD. Gotcha. Okay. That brings up a lot of interesting points, which I'll try to cover quickly. It kind of gives me like a squeaky wheel gets the oil, so to speak, where obviously people in all situations, um, the way our society works is like believing men more than women. Um, And so if you have a man presenting with a, a hyperactive Uh, especially in like a school setting, doctors are going to be more likely or at least more motivated um, to, to treat and diagnose a patient like that because it presents like learning obstacles for other kids in the room. A teacher is going to complain about that kid before an inattentive, inattentive kid. Mm -hmm. Because if a kid's spacing out and looking out the window, obviously you notice it, but that's not as much of a problem as the kid doing laps around the room because they can't sit still. Correct. So it makes sense that those are the ones that get diagnosed quickly and easily and everyone else either because of gender or the way it's presenting uh is is lower in terms of 
um, you know, diagnoses is, is the way it presents across the gender spectrum due to the way that we have traditionally, or like the roles we have traditionally ascribed to gender, or is it truly different just on a biological level? I Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it's different just on the, yeah, like a neurological level. Um, the hyperactive type is actually the lesser common. Uh, mm. There are three types. There's. Uh, I was like, should we go into types? Because Yeah, be we can go into types. Um, but also, I should probably put another, just before we get off of sort of who's who gets diagnosed yeah. is that uh, while we're talking about structures. So um, to also think that this is not, this is also part of the field that's not um, untouched by systemic and structural problems that our culture faces. Right. Um, so the two things I just want to kind of highlight is around race. Um, so BIPOC students or adults um, are more likely to get uh, misdiagnosed with things like oppositional defiant disorder or conduct disorders mm -hmm. and labeled as quote unquote bad kids. Um, and a lot of that is rooted in racism. Uh, and then I just want to throw in like a class kind of piece to it, which mm -hmm. is that getting tested is very expensive. Um, so I am just curious about all, all the folks who we might be missing based on some of these other structural things that are going on in our world. And we're going to hold off right there and make that the end of our episode one on ADHD. You can tune in next week for episode two. Uh, in the meantime, there's a form in the episode description to kind of give us some feedback about how we're doing here at Charting Queer Health. I'd so appreciate it if you took two minutes to fill it out. See you next week.